blessing of being assured that you're in Christ, and also the benefit of being secure in your relationship to Him. Well, in our study, we come now to this issue of acceptance, and we like to say it this way, that we need to accept our acceptance. In other words, if we have a sense of self-rejection, if we're still living with the baggage of a lack of meaningful love in our relationships, then that sense of trying to achieve, trying to measure up, trying to earn other people's acceptance will really be a detriment to our personal life and our relationships. Well, as we look through our study guide for Me to Live as Christ, one of the key issues here is how our acceptance is based upon being in Christ. Think with me about the baptism of the Lord Jesus. It's described, for example, in Matthew chapter 3. As Christ comes up out of the water, we have that beautiful picture of the Father saying of His Son, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So let me ask you this question. Is the Son of God acceptable to the Father? Of course He is. My next question, are you in Christ? Well, if you're a true believer, you are in Christ. The Bible says if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation. So if Christ is acceptable and you are in Him, then what are the implications about your acceptance? Well, you and I are accepted in the Beloved One. And that's the wording in Ephesians 1.6, that we are accepted in the Beloved. In Romans 15.7, we have a practical implication here where the Apostle Paul says we need to accept one another as God has accepted us in the Lord Jesus Christ. I guess we could reverse that and say that if we are still dealing with the baggage of rejection, if we don't accept our acceptance, then there's a good uh, chance that we're going to be also pushing other people away from us by causing them or requiring of them to measure up before we accept them. In other words, if we are critical of ourselves and we don't accept our acceptance, we're going to have a critical attitude toward others. What Romans 15:7 says, we need to receive, we need to accept one another as fellow believers by grace through faith, just as God has accepted us by our, by our faith in Him, by His amazing grace. In Philippians 3.9, Paul uses an illustration about being in Christ, which is really a, a wonderful blessing that relates to our acceptance. The only way a holy and just God can accept you and me is that if we have total pardon and the gift of His righteousness. Well, Philippians 3.9 describes uh, what it means to be in Christ in terms of our position. And it says, And be found in Him, that's in Christ, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Years ago, I remember someone showing me an illustration that um, helped regarding what it meant to be in Christ. And they used a card that described being in Christ. And I have that card around here somewhere, and I'm looking for it. Here it is. I wrote on this 3x5 card, S-I-N, which is a serious problem. But the good news is that Christ is our Redeemer. If we let this New Testament represent Christ, the Bible says, and be found in Him. So I'm going to put this card with our sin stains on it, in Him. And be found in Him, not having my own righteousness, which is by the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. In other words, when God sees you as an in Christ person, He sees you clothed with the righteousness and perfection of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Well, when we accept our acceptance, that has tremendous potential to give us freedom in Christ, to give us a sense of dignity, which also comes through humility. We don't deserve that acceptance, but it's given to us by His grace. And when we accept that acceptance by faith, then that gives us a sense of dignity and uh, promotes this mutual acceptance that Romans 15 talks about, accept one another as God has accepted us. Well, then we ask the question, why do we sometimes not feel acceptable? In other words, why is it sometimes a challenge for many of us to really believe that we're accepted by God and to have a sense of personal value and acceptance in our relationships? Well, the reason why is what we may summarize by the term rejection. And my mentor, Dr. Charles Solomon, wrote a book called The Ins and Out of Rejection, also a supplementary book called The Rejection Syndrome. Now, why did he call it a syndrome? Well, if you can picture the domino effect of one domino falling into another, when, let's say, um, your grandparents were raised, if they didn't have meaningful love and how they were raised, then that would have probably affected them emotionally and socially, and that, in turn, may have triggered how they parented your parents. Now, maybe your grandparents were, were raised in a very strict, demanding, performance-based environment. So let's say your parents, being raised in that, think, I'm, I'm not going to do that to my children. So let's say they do the opposite. They go from being very strict and demanding and harsh to being overly lenient, to being overly permissive. Well, if a parent is overly lenient and permissive and doesn't give healthy boundaries and accountability to their children, well, that's just another form of rejection. They're not caring enough uh, to confront when it's needed because the Bible says it's um, due to God's love that he disciplines us. And likewise, it's a parent that loves his or her child that motivates them to discipline them in a healthy, constructive, uh, useful way. So what do we mean by this concept of rejection? Basically, we're going to define it as a lack of meaningful love. A lack, notice the term meaningful love, because we're not here to, to blame our parents or grandparents. We're not here to excuse our own sinful actions or reactions. But we're simply observing the fact that you and I, as those made in the image of a personal, loving God, were created with a need for love. Wouldn't you agree? A need for love. We have a need for acceptance. We have a need for significance and security. We have a need for belonging and fellowship. Now, when Adam and Eve were in Eden before the fall, all those needs were met through their unhindered fellowship with God and their perfect marriage with one another. But after sin came into the world, after Adam and Eve broke that original covenant, then sin invaded the human race. They were spiritually cut off from God and cast out of Eden. So we are born into a sin-cursed world. We are born into mortal bodies. We're born with a spirit that's cut off from the life of God which is why we need to receive Christ as Savior to be born again. What we're talking about here in our study is that when we are um, on this pilgrim way through this life in this world where people are outside of fellowship with God, then we're going to be very disappointed. In other words, although Adam and Eve had perfect fulfillment in terms of love and acceptance due to their fellowship with God and each other, the world that you and I are born into is a world filled with heartache, rejection, sin, despair, 
wars, conflicts, disease, and so forth. In other words, you and I end up looking for love, if I can use the trite expression, in all the wrong places. And we are looking for love and acceptance from our parents, from our siblings, from our friends. So let me just summarize by saying, whatever deficit you've experienced in a lack of meaningful love, then we're just going to use the umbrella term rejection. You've experienced rejection. Now, all of us have to one extent or another. I guess we might say this way, there's no such thing as a family that's not dysfunctional, at least in some measure. But again, we're not here to blame or to, to shift responsibility, but to get a context of why you and I often have trouble with this issue of acceptance. Why? Because we often have the emotional and mental and relational baggage, those negative consequences of a lack of meaningful love. In your workbook, you're asked to actually look up in a dictionary and write down a definition of rejection. We also ask you to think about the difference between overt and covert rejection. What does Dr. Solomon mean by these terms? Well, overt means obvious. Covert would mean subtle. So let's think about the issue of overt or obvious rejection. If you think about your own personal experience or that of your family or, or friend, you can imagine or identify some obvious examples of rejection. I'm thinking of someone that came for counseling recently that has been adopted. Now, whenever someone has been adopted, there is kind of a vacuum of love and acceptance from their birth parents because they wonder, why did not my birth mother and father keep me? And so this issue of rejection and identity was swirling around in this counselee's heart and mind, which is very common. So um, another example of obvious rejection would be physical abuse, um, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. These things are chronic in our society, and those are obvious examples of rejection. What may not be as obvious is covert examples. Covert rejection might be things like the, um, the death of a parent. In other words, the parent did not intend to die if they died, let's say, in a traffic accident or of a disease, but there still would be a deficit in that this mother or father would not be in the life of their children in their formative years to give that love and acceptance that was needed. In my own experience, my mother died when she was only 38 years of age. I was 19, and I was out of the nest um, for a year or so. I had been to Bible college. I was involved in a Christian music ministry. And although my mother's death through cancer uh, was a tremendous loss, uh, I noticed that with my siblings, there was more of an emotional and psychological consequence in their lives. My sister, two years younger, my other sister, seven years younger, my brother, 13 years younger. It seems like the younger the sibling, the more of, of an emotional pain occurred in the loss of our mother. Well, if you think about your own uh, experience, there have been some obvious forms of rejection, also some less obvious forms, but the common denominator is a lack of meaningful love. When we think of uh, a common problem in our society today, um, that would be a type of covert rejection. It would be spoiling or overprotection. It seems like after uh, <clears throat> Dr. Spock wrote his book on child raising and really um, vilified uh, physical spanking and punishment, even if it's done in, in uh, the proper motive and, and with the right boundaries, 
it seems like it's become politically incorrect to use any kind of uh, intentional discipline uh, that the Bible describes as the use of the rod. So we've gone from perhaps excessive use, yes, many times excessive, angry, uh, sinful use of corporal punishment to uh, overprotection or spoiling. Well, if a child is not disciplined, if they're not given boundaries, if they're not held accountable for their behavior, then basically what comes across to them is, is uh, I can do what I want and the, there are no consequences for my behavior. Or if a parent tries to compensate by a lack of perhaps affection or generosity in how they were raised, they may shower their child with so many things that the child begins to equate things, material possessions, with personal love. And that also can create the wrong message where they think that love is about material things rather than about relationship. So I would like for you to think about this issue of a lack of meaningful love in your life, in your family, whether it was obvious, what kind of rejection that was, whether it was more subtle, what kind of lack of meaningful love that was. And then I would like for you to think about the question, how has that affected you in your mind, your emotions, your, your will in terms of how you've learned to react to the disappointments of life. You see, some people have, we call it, uh, using the biblical term flesh, we call it flesh patterns. People acquire flesh patterns of coping with the disappointments of life. So some, one individual might deal with rejection by blaming others. Well, the way I'm going to feel important is, is if I have a, a sense of rejection, I'll just say it's someone else's fault. Someone else may develop a flesh pattern of saying, well, I don't seem to be able to, to get the acceptance and approval of, of the authority figures in my life, so I'm just going to try twice as hard. I'm going to be performance-driven. I'm going to, to be perfectionistic. So their flesh pattern would be to try to overachieve to compensate for that lack of approval. So here we see that there are a variety of emotional, mental, and social consequences of that lack of meaningful love. In your workbook, notice here on the page that says emotional results in the rejected person. We mentioned things like feelings of worthlessness. And many of these, you can see the logical connection. If a parent doesn't treat their son or daughter as having value, then the feelings of worthlessness will be there. Uh, wishing we had not been born. Sometimes a parent tells the child that they wish that the child had not been born. Um, sometimes they just get that feeling for how they're, they're treated. Feelings of inferiority. If there's favoritism in the home, then the child that's uh, not favored is going to feel inferior. Worries, doubts, and fears. Inability to express feelings. Some homes suppress uh, dissent, suppress uh, feelings um, that are, are negative, and so they're just ignored. There's kind of a wall that's built up around the emotions, emotional insulation. Subjectivity, looking at life through the filter of those damaged emotions, anxiety, perfectionism. The pendulum may swing the other way and someone might say, I've tried to measure up, I can't, so why bother? So another example here is little self-discipline or even irresponsibility, who cares? Depression, that disappointment that comes through not finding that meaningful love self-condemnation. So if we're put down, criticized, we're not accepted, then it's very natural for us to impose that on our view of ourself as well, self-condemnation. 
self-hatred. That can be a, a mistaken form of humility where we think uh, I'm somehow more humble if I reject myself, which is to misinterpret Scripture. Guilt. Guilt for uh, our sinful reactions to, to these disappointments. And introspection. Uh, one lady came in for counseling and said she had a case of ingrown eyeballs. In other words, she was always looking inside. Introspection, if we're always looking inside and sorting out and sorting through these emotional and mental conflicts, then it's like sorting garbage. We're not going to find victory. We're not going to find the fulfillment that we're looking for. So those are some emotional results that are very common, which again are spelled out in more detail in the first chapter of Handbook to Happiness and also in Dr. Solomon's books on, on the rejection syndrome. Now, Before I proceed, let me just address an issue that may be in your mind. Say, John, you're talking a lot about what sounds like psychological issues. Now, doesn't the Bible say that we are to avoid worldly philosophies? And isn't psychology very humanistic? And that's a valid concern. And so what I'd like to talk briefly about is that there are three basic approaches to dealing with what we might call psychology or things that you observe about human behavior. Now, if I can just simplify these three alternatives, especially in the context of Christian counseling, one alternative is to just try to integrate two fields of knowledge. They accept almost uh, without um, discernment or without uh, dis um, validating the observations. They'll just mix together psychology and Christian counseling. That's called integration. We do not use that model. The other option I'll call isolation, which is the viewpoint that says that psychology is humanistic. It's, it's um, without value, and so we just won't consider it whatsoever. We'll just stick with biblical teaching. And that's valid in terms of discipleship, but what we've discovered over the years is that it really is useful to get a context of the counselee's life. In other words, if you can understand more about how rejection and the quest for identity and other things that are observable, we'll call them psychological um, insights, that those are not necessarily humanistic. They're simply observable information that God makes available to us through what theologians call general revelation. So in other words, if there is information about how we function, how we react, that is something that can be observed, that's not based on humanistic philosophy, then we can use it in a diagnostic role. In other words, psychology can help us understand ourselves and others, but by itself it can't change anyone. When I thought about uh, this third use, which I call contextualization, I borrowed that from studies in world missions, where a missionary contextualizes the gospel. A missionary goes to India, where I've been recently, and sees that, that amazing culture, that diversity of languages and so forth, and they go to that, that country, and they, they study the culture, the language, and then with that understanding of the context, they'll take the unchanging truth of God's word and share the gospel, but sensitized and um, tailored to that cultural context. Well, if that's a valid principle in missions, in biblical counseling, we believe it's a valid uh, principle in terms of the role of things like rejection and identity and other psychological concepts in the people helping process. In other words, whatever we can learn about human behavior and relationships 
that's not based on humanistic philosophy, but it's based about what you can observe in your own life and your own experience, then those can be useful in getting a context for applying God's victorious life message. Much of what you hear in this course in terms of rejection and in Dr. Salman's books comes from his personal experience as an individual and 40 years of clinical experience as well. So many times when people have read uh, the literature from Grace Fellowship on rejection, when they come in for counseling, they say, when I read that book, it's like Dr. Salman was talking about my own experience. And when they understand the quest for, for meaning and the quest for I, uh, identity and acceptance and things, uh, that doesn't resolve their conflicts, but it gives a, a sense of preparedness so they understand what their version of self is so they can then exchange that for Christ and their new identity in him. So that may be kind of a, a long uh, sidebar in terms of explaining the concept of psychology. But yes, the Bible does say forgetting what lies behind and focusing upon what lies ahead. We should press on toward the upward call of God. But remember in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses, before the children of Israel crossed over into Canaan with Joshua, gave three long sermons reminding them of where they got off track, not to have them fixate on the past, but to learn from the past, to have a context for entering into Canaan with new, a new sense of victory and a new optimism. So just like Moses could remind them of the past to help them move forward. So here we're talking about learning from your life experience, not to stay there or to dwell on it, but to learn some valuable insights so that we can move ahead into this not I, but Christ quality of victorious living. Well, with that uh, concept of rejection and acceptance discussed, we need to ask the next question, and that is, since we have this need to accept who we are in Christ, how does that relate to the concept of identity? In other words, each of us, just like, like we need love and acceptance, we also need a sense of a positive, unshakable personal identity. And so I'd like for you to think with me about this as we look at, at our notes here concerning Matthew chapter 16. And in this passage, our Lord Jesus asks a question about identity. Now, in the original context, what he's talking about is his own identity. But I'd like for you to look at this scripture with me, and then we want to draw some conclusions from this about our personal Christian testimony in life. It says in Matthew chapter 16, verse 17, Peter answered, Blessed are you. He said when Christ asked them, Who do men say that I am? They, they answered, Some say you're John the Baptist raised from the dead. Some say Jeremiah, Elijah, or one of the prophets. Then the Lord asks them, But who do you say that I am? And Peter answers the right way saying um, that you are the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Christ says to Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So as we look at this passage, we want to, to um, borrow these three questions and draw some implications for you and for me. The first question is, Who have other people said that I am? For example, our Lord's first question was, who, who have people said that I am? He's asking them about other people's concept of the identity of Jesus. And that's the first question we want to ask in terms of 
this correlation to the Christian life. Who have other people said that you are? In other words, think back about um, how you were raised, your experience in your home, your family, your, your schooling, even your adult life. What kind of identity messages have come to you? That's the first question. The second implied question is, um, who do you say that you are? Our Lord said to the apostles, but who do you say that I am? And they had the right answer. Jesus, you are the Messiah. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so we also have taken from the various messages that have come our way, and we have made our own interpretation of our own personal identity. In other words, we need to identify our identity. Have you ever done that? Sometimes I ask a counselee, if I were to ask you, who are you, what would you say? What would your identity be? Sometimes they actually say, I really don't know. Sometimes when I ask this to other men, they'll identify with the job that they do, their career. I'm a carpenter, I'm a teacher, uh, whatever their, their occupation is. If I ask this of women, if they're married, they would identify themselves with their marriage. Or if they're a mother, they identify themselves in their relationship with their children. If I ask this question about identity to young people, that's often based upon their social group or their appearance or their achievements. But friends, if your identity is based on anything other than your spiritual oneness with Christ, then that identity is going to be uncertain, it's going to be shakable, and it's going to be based on performance. And God has something much better for you. He wants you to accept your union with Christ as the basis of a new identity. And we're going to talk about that more in the next lesson. Now, as we wrap up this study of the blessing of acceptance, we want to conclude with the question, in light of God's love for me, in light of the new identity that he offers to me, what does it mean when he asks me to surrender myself totally to him? Here on our workbook, we're talking about the issue of total commitment. And let me ask you, when you were saved or subsequent to that, can you remember a time in your life when you said, Lord, I just want you to have complete control of my life. We're calling that total commitment or total surrender. And Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, is a verse that I hope you'll study and memorize. And it says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. A couple things. One, who is this verse addressed to? It's addressed to believers. I urge you, therefore, brethren, I guess we could say ancestren, all of us as believers. And what is the motivation? By the mercies of God. And I'd like to remind you that includes salvation, assurance, security, acceptance. And then what are we challenged to do? We are exhorted to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. You say, John, that sounds pretty radical. It is radical. But notice that the term radical means going to the root. And friends, this is the root of our responsibility to have a Christ-centered life. In this verse, we are told that being a living sacrifice is our reasonable service. Well, if it's such a radical commitment, how can it be reasonable? is reasonable because of what Jesus Christ did for you and me. 
If the Son of God could leave the glory of heaven and be nailed to a cross to pay for your sins and mine when we were enemies of God, so you and I could escape hell and have everlasting life, how much more is it reasonable for you and for me, who are recipients of God's lavish grace, to say, Lord, thank you. Take control of my life. Live your life through me, whatever that cost may be. Well, God is so gracious that he sweetens the deal for us a little bit more. At the end of verse 2, it says, God's will for you is good and acceptable and perfect. So, friend, if God's will for your life is good and it's acceptable and it's perfect, doesn't that sound like a good deal? I remember being at Florida Bible College um, just a year after I finished high school, hearing a message along this line challenging us to stand to our feet to surrender our life to the Lord the best we knew how. And I'm so glad I stood that day because God took my life in a whole new direction that it would have, I uh, totally would have missed out on that if I hadn't said yes to what Romans 12, 1 and 2 is talking about. Now you might say, well, I, I think I have done that in the past, but, but I've drifted away from that commitment. Reminds me of that that witticism that the trouble with a living sacrifice that it can keep crawling off the altar. Well, yes, here we're talking about the idea of a wholehearted surrender, but it does need to be a daily surrender, doesn't it? It needs to be a continual, not I but Christ attitude. But the grammar of Romans 12 is saying, make a wholehearted decision. And if you can't remember a time when you were saved or subsequent to your salvation where you've made this wholehearted surrender, guess what? God is inviting you and calling you to that commitment today. Is it costly? Yes, but it's worth it because God's will for your life is good, acceptable, and perfect. And it's only as you surrender to him that you allow him to work on your case in a more in-depth way and can then he can then lead you forward in this not I but Christ exchange where he will illumine you more and more about what it means to live out of your new identity. In your workbook, there is a a sample prayer of total surrender. That's simply a suggested guideline. But as you meditate on this challenge from Romans, and as you think about what Christ has done to you and for you uh, through salvation and through what he did for us on the cross, may we respond with this, yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey. When your spirit works in me, with my whole heart I'll agree. And my answer will be yes, Lord. Yes. God bless you.